The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. Welcome this morning. Those of you who are online, those who may be visiting with us, we are very glad to have you with us today. Here at The Springs, we are a body transformed into the image of Christ that many may find their way to God. And we do this through a three-phase cycle in our language of gathering in the name of the Father, growing into the image of Christ, and going by the power of the Spirit to our communities and into the world. Um, I'm not the normal preacher this morning. As Kelly said this morning, we are starting our summer series in which Ben and Brett get a brief break. I stumbled over that in my notes the first time I tried to read that. Um, But we are starting our summer series, United Living Our Faith. We've been very focused on the gather piece of our three-phase cycle this year, and in particular, unity. As Jesus prayed for us, that we might be united together in the same way that he is united with the Father. And we're going to hear about a number of our communal Christian practices. So we're going to hear about prayer and we're gonna hear about generosity, and we're gonna hear about creed and stating our beliefs, and a number of other topics from great speakers. And this morning, we are starting on the foundation of baptism. So let's dive right into Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you've been been around the Church of Christ very long in our tradition, you're probably pretty familiar with this passage and what I think of as the other top two passage on baptism, Acts 2.38, go therefore and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. It's, It's encoded into us. It's a core part of our teaching, specifically around baptism for the purpose of salvation from our sins and joining the church. It's what we do whenever we are deciding to follow Jesus, whenever we're joining the church. Um, And you may have even seen a diagram like the one we're about to put on the screen here. It's one that we use specifically when we're teaching from this passage in Romans. It looks something like going down into the water, going back up. The image communicates the death that happens in being buried with Christ, being under the water, that symbolic motion, um, and then coming back up to a new life. We'll get that diagram here in just a minute. (laughs) And sometimes, this is a simplified version of it, sometimes you may see it along with a cross over here on the death side of the picture and with an empty tomb over on the right side of the picture. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's one that I saw fairly frequently uh, growing up and teaching about baptism. And I want to focus this morning on the pattern of the dip and the rise the dip into death, the rise into new life. And we're going to look at this from a number of angles this morning. If you haven't been around the Church of Christ tradition very much, um, the way that we practice this looks something like this. So if I want to be baptized, I'm going to make a confession. Uh, It could be a small group. It could be up in front of the whole church that says something like, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. 
And then once we're dressed for it and we're in the water, the person who is baptizing me says something semi-liturgical that we've kind of hammered out over time, something like, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins. At least that's the way I've always heard it. I know there's some variety uh, in there as well. And then we do the secret baptism handshake. Now, I think this is a modern thing, but if you've been around the process, you may know what I'm talking about. So the baptizer has his hand on your back so that he can keep you stable when you go down. And then the fun part. So I hold my nose, and the baptizer holds my arm that's holding my nose, and then I hold his arm that's holding my arm that's holding my nose. It's the secret baptism handshake, and it works great. I don't know who invented it, but we're not paying him enough for that invention all to facilitate the dip and the rise, down and back up, death and new life. This is a pattern. And as much teaching as I've heard in my life on baptism for salvation and the remission of sins, I have less often heard the hints of how deeply tied the act of baptism is to the rest of God's story as it's recorded in Scripture. Think about the cleansing in the temple. In order to enter closer into the presence of God, a priest would have to conduct certain cleansing ceremonies that would involve very specific acts of washing so that they could be pure enough to be closer to God. Or you might think of God's people passing through the water to inherit the promise. Think of Joshua leading Israel across the river into the promised land. Or perhaps Moses, in a similar action, escaping from the Pharaoh's armies out of Egypt. And then you have the added component there of God using the water to set them free, to do away with the evil that pursued them so that they could go worship him in the desert. Even that most confusing of days of creation, the second day, when it says God separated the waters above from the waters below. It's referring to this ancient worldview that between the earth and our sky and the heavens above is a layer of water called the firmament. And if I wanted to pass from here and rise up into the heavens, I would have to cross through the water to reach God. These are a few examples, but this is all over the place in Scripture. And there's some wonderful Uh, books that can point many of those things out. It's a pattern in Scripture of the dip and the rise into the water, new life, death, and rising into new life. The concept of the dip and the rise is embedded even in the Greek words themselves. If you'll go with me here, we're going to nerd out for just a second on Greek. Now, I can't go too deep on this. Bapto is the root word in Greek, to dip. Literally, it can be used for washings, it can be used in all kinds of contexts, just the simple verb to dip. Baptizo, on the other hand, you add this little iota zeta suffix, and that adds intentionality and severity. So this isn't just dipping something into the water, it's really getting it in there. I cause to dip intentionally. Now, the Greek language at the time of the stories recorded in the Bible uh, is a very old language. Plato and Aristotle have been dead for more than 300 years at this point, and as language does, it adopts new uses and new meanings over time. And that's what you see on the bottom row here. Bapto, to dip, one of the most common uses in Greek writings for this term is to dye cloth. Whenever I dye something, I dip it down into the dye. 
but over time, it became used for imbue, to imbue something with that color, with the new properties, to make it beautiful uh, in a way that it was not before, to imbue, in context completely unrelated to dipping at all. And then baptizo, on the other hand, now think of drown. See, I have this like death connotation, tie back to Romans chapter six here, the death of drowning. But it's not just drown, but maybe I'm drowning in drink was actually a common use of this word baptizo. I'm overcome by, by the substance in my body. Also used by overcome by an army. I'm overwhelmed, I'm drowning in you know, the conquest of this army. Or even for argument and philosophy. I have been thoroughly overwhelmed and completely beaten. My state is new. Even in the words themselves, we have this idea of death and new life, this transformation that occurs in that process. And what I want to point out today is that this pattern does not just remain in the act of baptism. It does not just remain in the story of the Bible, uh, as we've seen it echoed and reflected in a few different places, but this echoes throughout our life. Now, how does baptism unify us? We'll get the obvious out of the way. Ephesians says there's one baptism. We've all been baptized, or that's the way that we typically are initiated into the body of Christ. So sure, we're united because we've all done that. And there's a uniting factor in just having those ceremonies and rituals that bring us together. Uh, The cleansing of sin, absolutely, living a holier life. We're united by those things. Also, we're united because of the way this pattern continues to echo. So let's go back to our passage in Romans one more time, just briefly. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So look at the pattern here. Jesus submitted to death and we submit in baptism to a death like his or a burial like his for the purpose of being risen to a new life like his. This very same message is also um, reflected in the letter to the Philippians. And I wanna look at how this is similar and also extends the thought. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. So we again have this concept of our role is to imitate Jesus. Our role is to imitate Jesus even into death, symbolic or otherwise, I suppose. But it adds this concept, and it's not quite equivalent, but certainly included, of humility. The death of humility, the willingness to be wrong, the willing to submit to something else, to another power, to someone else's will. And then why? Why that death of humility in your relationships with one another? It ties the concept of Jesus' death and new life into the result of improved relationships with one another. And this is fully consistent with what Paul is doing in Romans. After Paul talks about baptism, and doing away with sin, and living a new and holy life, and being grafted into the 
family tree of Israel, he gets eminently practical in chapters 12 through 14 toward the end of the book. So let's flip over to the next slide, please. And I've plucked these out. I had to trim the list down because there's just too many. A sampling of what Paul says is the result of doing away with sin and living a more holy life. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. This is the dip in the rise. This is the echoes of baptism throughout our life. This is the result of what we're talking about when we do away with sin and live a more holy life. I'd like to propose this morning that not only is baptism a singular and individual act of contrition and salvation, next slide please, but it begins our practice of dying to self, of leaving behind what is harmful mutually and together to become something new. Baptism is an enactment of and initiation into the new way of living in the kingdom of God here on earth. It's not only something we did, it is what we continue to do as we practice the dip and the rise. There's a number of places we can look for wisdom on what this looks like, but one of the resources that we've used in our church family here and found very helpful for navigating interpersonal conflict or possibly church conflict, not that that would ever happen here, of course, um, is Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, and it's accompanying resources and training uh, that come along with it. And at its topmost, uh, most high-level summary, Sandy uses the four G's to describe the process of reconciliation. Glorify God, number one. Two, get the log out of your own eye. Three, gently restore. And four, go and be reconciled. And the thing that stands out first when you see a list like this is that number one and two, 50% of the effort here happens before I ever go and approach someone with whom I have a conflict. And most, again, striking about this is that not only does it happen before I go talk to the other person, but it addresses the concept of humility. Glorify God, humility before God. Maybe stopping to acknowledge our, um, our role. This is another person who God loves, created by God. Maybe my understanding of my relationship with God leads me to believe there are expectations about how I treat this person. And then humility before others, before our neighbor. Of course, get the log out of your own eye, referencing the parable about before you address the speck in someone else's eye. Do some introspection. Whether you're justified or not, whether it's natural to be angry or not, before you come in hot and make the situation worse, maybe it takes some reflection to understand how we might have contributed to the current situation. Now, what this is not, and just as we continue the conversation today, what I am not saying, this is not be the better man. See also humility above. And this is not giving in to be walked all over. Some have interpreted some of the Christian uh, turn the other cheek philosophy in that way. 
But I would suggest that while some of these tools might be very useful for situations that are somewhat one-sided, where we're trying to reconcile and the other person's not in good faith coming to the table, I would also have some other recommendations to throw in there about being safe and setting appropriate boundaries, things like that. That is not what this is. But this is how we may be unified. The pattern of the dip of humility before God, before each other, and then going to begin that new changed life that looks different than it would have before. This is what we do. We could learn a lot from Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, who during the 2017 Me Too movement had a brief moment of fame in the venue that we all want fame, which was Twitter. You may remember this. Um, She, uh, in 2017, of course, many prominent men were being called out and made accountable for actions that they may have taken, made that year or for years and years um, of abuse and trauma inflicted on women. And now they're seeing tangible impacts and accountability for that. People lost their jobs, they were canceled. And in those conversations, Um, What Danya Ruttenberg recognized as a Jewish scholar was that there was a gap in our societal conversation about what to do after the accountability. So if you're somebody who is traumatized or has been harmed or is seeking justice for another person, you may say, well, they got what they deserved, great, and I kind of don't care what happens after. But nevertheless, There is a gap in the societal conversation about how if a person wanted to do what was right, to change and to make things right, what are the steps and the obligations that a person could go through to restore their status? What would that even look like in a modern context? And she references generations of rabbinic wisdom in the Talmud. Specifically, and of course this started on Twitter, but it ultimately ended with her writing a book about these concepts. Um, She references heavily the work of a, a medieval philosopher named Maimonides, who took the sprawling wisdom of the Talmud and he went and plucked all of the topics addressing repentance and repair. And this was called the laws of repentance and it made it very succinct. And she takes the steps advised by Maimonides and tries to demonstrate and set an example for what would this look like in our modern context with a very serious issue that's affecting a lot of people. And the first step recommended in this process is to confess. And not just to confess, but to confess without defensiveness. You did it. It's done. Own it. The second step of five is to start to change. So that could look in a modern context like therapy. It could look like entering recovery uh, for substance abuse or something like that. It could look a lot of ways. The third step of five is to make amends, to begin to do what was right to try to repair what was done. This could look like covering someone's medical bills or legal fees associated with the problem that you caused in their life. Every situation is different. Fourth of the five, you're almost done, is to apologize. Now, what struck me immediately was, why is apologize at the end of the process, after I've put in this much work? And the reason is that the apology sounds a lot different whenever in the heat of the moment I've been called out and made accountable 
and might have some passionate feelings about that and be upset and angry. That's the apology that sounds like, I'm sorry you feel that way. It sounds a lot different whenever you have owned it, gotten past your defensiveness, practiced the dip into humility, and learned what you can do different and have begun to make amends with that person. Now your apology reflects that you understand what happens and it reflects some empathy with that person and your apology is real. And then the last of the five steps is to make different choices the next time. That sounds a lot to me like when I learned the five steps of salvation as a kid, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, live faithfully. There's this active component where you go and be different and your choices have to reflect that. The dip and the rise. We could also learn a great deal from Latasha Morrison. Latasha um, began an organization called Be the Bridge, and the purpose of this organization is to seek and practice racial reconciliation across issues that divide us. She didn't start her career seeking to, uh, seeking recon racial reconciliation. In fact, she just began as a minister at a church in Texas where she says it was a good church full of good people, and that's still how she describes it. Nevertheless, in her work, as her coworkers came and made comments about her family photos that were sitting on her desk, and as she was sitting at youth soccer games and other parents wanted to talk to her about her politics, she began to encounter casual racism, as she would describe it. And it's not her job to educate another person on why what they're saying might not be exactly appropriate in her context or how it hurt her feelings. Nevertheless, she wondered what she could do to help in the situation, and it started with gathering a group of women to talk about it. It was a diverse group of women that met in living rooms, and they passed around a little elephant figurine around the circle, and whoever was holding the elephant could talk about their experiences and tell stories from their life. And in that process, they learned more about one another and their experiences together. They had movie nights. They served meals to each other. They ate and prayed, laughed and cried in that living room. And then they realized that what they had experienced was healing, that now they understood one another, that they were willing to go to bat and advocate for one another whenever something is going wrong or whenever they are the victim of what might be completely unintentional, un unknown actions that were harmful. And she certainly acknowledges that most people are well-intentioned in that regard. But this forum that she had built, this small community she had built, became a very valuable resource after events like the 2014 murder of Michael Brown. Events like that that have happened over and over, the 2020 murder of George Floyd and beyond, tend to accelerate and cause people to dig in on the arguments that they've had over time. Police violence against brown bodies, a few bad apples. And you don't need me to repeat this to you. It's an issue that divides us, and it divides us over and over again. And she realized, I have a community where we can talk about this. And we can talk about how what that person experienced reflects the experience I have in my life. And we're willing to understand one another in that conversation. And that looks different than what's out there. And 
what she ultimately did was encode the process that she went through with this group of women into an organization that uses a biblical framework to seek to bridge this divide, and then in a book of the same name, which you see on the screen here. So I want to read to you a summary that comes at the end of her book that talks about the resulting process, kind of its entirety, and how it relates to Scripture. But she doesn't, going into it, pull any punches about the fact that if you are part of the majority culture, you have to bend low in a posture of humility to be able to begin to have the conversation. And here's what she says. We acknowledge the truth of our racial history because as scripture says, the truth has the power to set us free. We lament injustice and push through the guilt and shame of our history of racial sin because only then can we recognize and truly grieve our sins. We confess our sins so that we may be healed by God. We seek and extend forgiveness for the racial injustices we've perpetrated or suffered because we were forgiven by Christ himself. We repent and turn from our sin and do everything within our power to right the wrongs we've committed or our ancestors have committed because that's the evidence of lives changed by God. And finally, we seek restorative reconciliation because we were restored and reconciled by God. Now, this is a conversation that could be dismissed. And I have heard dismissed by well-meaning people who might have thoughts like, we're increasing the division because we keep talking about it. Or who might have thoughts for, or like, I can't be blamed for the actions of someone else who came before me. While in one view, those are some reasonable thoughts, this is better. This reflects the dip, the willingness to change, the willingness to see a hard truth and to be introspective about how I may have committed an action that could have harmed another person. Whether I intended to or not, whether I knew it or not, it's not the point. I don't have to be defensive about it because we as Christians are accustomed to looking for sin in our life, rooting it out, bending low in humility, and rising again to something new. We talk about transformation and God transforming us more into the image of Christ. Putting away sin, doing the work of humility. And this is not about responding necessarily even to social messaging that has its own strengths and its own problems and drawbacks. But I love that the framework that she outlined came from looking at the people around you and hearing their experiences of your neighbor and your community and responding with humility so that they might grow together and they continue to support the work of one another in big and little ways. Um, so as I close and talk about what this looks like for us, I want to briefly retell a story you've probably heard before about Captain Sullenberger and his miraculous landing of an airplane on the Hudson River. Two minutes after taking off from a New York airport, a flock of geese, not one goose, a flock of geese flies through both engines, both engines are dead, and he has less than three minutes from that moment until they land in the water. And in a recent retelling that I read, it lays out like a full page list of here's all the things he had to do, and it just increases my unbelief at the level of skill that he has. He had to find out where to land, first of all. There were four options, and none of them were good. 
He had to stop the engines to prevent any further damage. He had to set the speed so that they could glide as long as possible to exercise their options. He had to get the nose down to continue that speed, and now he's not working with engines. He's working with backup systems and whatever's available to him. He had to turn off all the automatic systems that would have interfered with his full control of the plane in that moment. He had to seal all the vents and valves so the plane would be as buoyant as possible whenever it landed on the water so that it could continue to float. And he had to guide the plane in a very aggressive left turn so that when he landed, he would be going with the flow of the water. That he even thought about that is amazing to me. And then, of course, he has to level off the plane using whatever is available to him in three dimensions, like tip to nose, wing to wing, pointed downstream. Unbelievable. And what he did in saving those people is every bit a testament to his skill, and he deserves all of the accolades that he's gotten. The reason I tell this story right here is because N.T. Wright uses this story as an example of the definition of Christian virtue, of all things. He calls it more casually the power of right habits, defined as making 1,000 choices not to do what came naturally, but to, with effort, do what is good and right, so that on the thousand and first time, you might find it comes naturally. It comes automatically. It was not uh, Sully's or Captain Sullenberger's gut instinct that got him there. Sure, it was skill, but it was also that 1,000 times practice to know exactly what the capabilities of the plane were and exactly what to do in that situation. It was his practice. We as Christians practice the dip and the rise so that on the thousand and first time, whenever it really matters to the person next to us in our, not pews, in our seats, when it really matters to our community, our church, our world, we will automatically inhabit the second nature of the kingdom. And that's powerful. Exemplifying that pattern is powerful, and it can grow from beyond just our church and our local unity to express the power of Jesus further out in our society. This is a new way of living, a way that heals rather than harms, a way that bridges and unites instead of divides, and it's what we are called to practice. Last slide, please. We are united because we've each been baptized. That's our initiation. That's something we all do. We are also united because together we practice a new kind of life enacted in baptism. The practice of the dip and the rise, a beautiful echo of our initiation into the church, an imitation of Jesus in baptism that allows us to put the harm we do behind, not defensively, but freely admitting that we are ready to change to be more like Christ, more loving of our neighbor. The dip and the rise.